My son Matthew did not look like a winner. He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died. Here I am, I'm 26, I'm gay. I was in the newsroom at the Casper Star Tribune where I was a reporter. And then an anti-gay hate crime happens to one of my friends. It was unfathomable to me, the description of the violence. Matt was beaten in the head and the face, struck between 19 and 21 times uh, with the butt end of a 357 Smith & Wesson. Matthew was covered in blood, and the only place where there was uh, was no blood where is where a tear had run down from his eye across his cheek. On October 6, 1998, my firstborn son and my hero lost. My first reaction was, why wasn't I there? because I still have this haunting feeling that he was crying for dad. You know, dad, help me, help me. This was a story that got the world's attention. It was an entry point for people who didn't know that this kind of thing even happened, the severity of attacks on gay people. Prior to the Shepherd investigation, I was uh, completely and, and fully homophobic. The word faggot came out of my mouth as easily as I love you did to my children. And it didn't take uh, too long for me to begin to realize that all of the myths and stereotypes that I'd bought into all of my life were, uh, were just that. A lot of people began to send us cards and letters, emails, and some of them included money. And we chose to use that money to make a difference, do something positive. The world made the Matthew Shepard Foundation happen. It insisted on it. The Shepherds were called to do this work because people needed to hear from them. This afternoon, I signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. That was one of Judy's goals. They had told her, we've been trying to get this law passed for 30 years. You'll never get it done. Took her another 10 years, but she got it done. The most perplexing thing about hate for me is it's a conscious choice. You choose to do that. You learn to do that. It's not going to stop until we all decide by the millions that we aren't going to live in that world anymore. Those few of us who are fortunate enough to know him have always discouraged people from making him out to be a martyr. The important thing about Matt Shepard was he was a person. Just remember that Matthew was not my gay son. He's my son who happens to be gay. You're listening to Gay News America. My name is Brandon Carmody. Uh, we are honored to have with us as a guest this morning, Jason Marsden, the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Jason, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Jason, that introduction from the Matthew Shepard Foundation, um, as heavy as it is, pretty much lays out this story. And I understand that you knew Matthew. Um, would you mind sharing with our listeners, you know, what 
what were some of your memories? What was this experience like? Yeah, um, I met Matt at a mutual friend's birthday party uh, maybe a year and a half uh, before he was attacked. I, I unfortunately never, I didn't keep a diary, and I never knew that that day was going to turn out to be so important. But um, it was in the winter time, and I went to this get-together in one of the little apartments that students live in. And um, he recognized me from my mugshot. I was a newspaper reporter at the time and wrote an opinion column frequently uh, because I you know, was 25 years old and knew everything. Um, but he recognized me and challenged me about why there hadn't been anything in the newspaper about what was going on in Afghanistan at the time. And this is late 1996, early 1997 is my best guess. Um, and um, he went on to explain that Afghanistan, uh, after uh, the Soviets withdrew, had uh, developed into a somewhat Western-facing nation, at least in Kabul and the other major cities, and um, that uh, girls were able to attend school uh, and women had some reasonable degree of freedom, and then um, they had been taken over by a, a theocratic uh, revolutionary movement that... Um, kept girls home from school, kept women from leaving home without a male escort, and uh, were flogging people in the soccer stadium as their judicial system. And um, the Casper Star Tribune was Wyoming's newspaper of record, and there's nothing at all in the paper about it, and why was that the case? And I looked at this five foot two, maybe 110-pound blonde kid with braces uh, challenging me about the paper's editorial coverage of international affairs, and and this is at a time when you know we didn't have the internet um, and smartphones and and the, all of the 24-hour news cycle that we have now. Uh, and I knew nothing about it. I I had the internet and the AP wire on my desk. I read everything every day from the financial wire to the sports wire and in between. And I had never heard anything about what was going on in Afghanistan. And I said, well, you know, I'll let the wire editor know that somebody would like to see us run a peace the next time one moves. And I didn't give it a lot more thought other than to reflect on, I mean, this is really an extraordinary young person to to bring something like this up at a, at a cocktail party. And um, of course, in 2001, three years after we had lost Matt, we all found out why it was important to pay attention to what was going on in Afghanistan. And um, I remember on 9-11, I was living in Washington, D.C., on an upper floor on 14th Street, facing south, and I could see the smoke rising from the Pentagon attack and thought, you know, as CNN and other media uh, started very quickly pointing at Afghanistan, I thought, my God, Matt Shepard told me about this five years ago, and um, nobody was paying any attention, but he was. He was international in his outlook. He had traveled the world uh, pretty extensively for somebody who never got past the age of 21. He was interested in languages. He was interested in human rights, particularly women's rights in the Near East. Uh, He was very political. Um, The last time I saw him, about six weeks before his murder, he was absolutely losing his mind over the Clinton impeachment and what a travesty it was and was full of opinions, interested in... um, improving the the life of this world uh, uh, for people who were not free or did not have their basic needs met or uh, were facing oppression of some sh- of some sort uh, he was the kind of person who wanted to say all right what can we do and uh, I always expected he would go into diplomacy or 
human rights work or the United Nations or relief agencies, something uh, to satisfy his desire to improve things around him. And um, and there's very few people like that in, in our time, uh, and even fewer of them are, are uh, gay kids from places like Wyoming. Um, and so there was a lot of potential lost uh, with his death. Um, uh, and we live in a time now, I think, when we would be very fortunate to have even one more person around who cared about those things. No, I completely agree. Um, when you look at the current generation, Jason, you know, take it the the YouTube stars, the LGBTQ community that's getting out there on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, working with human rights campaign, do you kind of see a future generation of Matthew Shepard's like that same spirit, like what he might have been like today uh, in this age? Do you, do you kind of feel that that spirit is alive today with some of the young activists that you see out there? Absolutely, and I think um, I think it's come a lot farther in a shorter period of time than I would have expected. Uh, there are a lot of downsides to this uh, globalization phenomenon, including the globalization of information and philanthropy. But uh, we are all much better informed than even the most informed people on the planet were 20 years ago. Uh, the standard of um, circulation of information, intellectual curiosity access to news media, to opinion media, is extraordinary compared to even that time, um, which was a time when everyone was marveling at what the information superhighway, as we called it, uh, stood a chance of delivering. Um, we're, we're growing up now, our kids are growing, I'm well grown up, but our, our kids' generation is growing up now steeped in uh, a global culture um, and... Um, there's no excuse now for not knowing or caring uh, what's going on in another part of the world. And uh, a lot of young people are, are unwilling to settle for what the world will serve them up. Uh, and they're increasingly uh, looking to have an impact uh, charitably, politically, through their business ventures, uh, and uh, at an interpersonal level with their loved ones and family and fellow members of their community. It is not in, It is not a shy time we live in. People are very forward and um, uncompromising about their views. And there's a good deal of downside surrounding that, at least for those of us who uh, are, are hind-footed by this sudden social change. But um, yeah. there's an awful lot of promise in it, too. Absolutely. So I want to um, get into the backstory of the foundation. So one one bit of information I want to share with you and with our listeners, Kathy Renna, who is one of our recurring guests and contributor, mm. uh, was communications director for GLAAD at the time. And when mm -hmm. um, Matthew was attacked and it was on the news, she was telling GLAAD and telling other people, this is big. This is a huge mm -hmm. story and we need to get there. We need to be on the ground. So she mobilized a team from GLAAD and I believe was on the ground in Laramie within 24 hours. Um, and we've all seen the video of Ellen DeGeneres speaking. So um, it was it was a pivotal moment in history. But I want to ask you about the Shepherds. I want to ask you about mm -hmm. Judy and Dennis. What can you tell us about them and how they ended up creating the Matthew Shepherd Foundation, which I'm just going to read this. The Matthew Shepherd Foundation empowers individuals to embrace human dignity and diversity through outreach, advocacy, and resource programs. We strive to replace hate with understanding, compassion, and acceptance. 
So what's, what is the story of Dennis and Judy Shepherd and the foundation? Sure. Uh, so um, as you can imagine, Dennis and Judy were wholly consumed uh, in those days after the attack, first by getting uh, to Fort Collins, to the hospital where Matt was in intensive care. Uh, Dennis was working overseas in Saudi Arabia. He's uh, uh, an oil and gas industry safety engineer and um, had found work abroad uh, during those years. And um, so that it took them about 24 hours to get to Fort Collins, where they were completely immersed in um, staying with Matt, making him as comfortable as they possibly could in, in the hospital, trying to surround him with positive thoughts. They sprayed his cologne in the room. Um, they um, were, were there um, commiserating uh, with and keeping vigil with many other relatives uh, and close family friends. And um, after the six days of Matt's hospitalization, uh, he succumbed to his injuries, and they had to go into the mode of planning a funeral and all of the incredibly um, uh, time-consuming and, and emotionally sensitive tasks that um, families face when, uh, when a loved one departs. Um, in the meantime, the world was taking an interest in this case from the local and regional media, uh, things like our newspaper, uh, to the Denver Post, uh, Denver television stations, the Associated Press picked that up. Uh, it ga it uh, gained access to the rest of the national media through that route. Networks and 24-hour cable news picked it up from there. Someone asked President Clinton uh, to make a statement, um, and so it became national political news. Uh, and then um, it reached the international media. And a lot of people ask why uh, why this one? There were other hate crimes that year. There are other hate crimes every year. Why was this the one that got the world's attention? And it's a hard question to answer other than human beings respond to stories. Uh, and this story had all the characteristics of a story that people remember and retell. It had... Uh, vivid characters, it had dramatic circumstances, it was set in an unusual place, being Laramie, Wyoming, and it had a cliffhanger ending when Matt was in intensive care. Would he survive? If he did survive, would he really be himself anymore due to the brain injuries that he suffered? And and then the ultimate tragic outcome occurred, and um, the Shepherds received 25,000 approximately uh, sympathy cards, letters, uh, over 100,000 emails were sent to the uh, to the uh, hospital account that was set up to receive these messages. Um, this being the 1990s, um, they were all printed off. Uh, and uh, the result, uh, which lives in uh, shelving at the Shepherd's home still, was a co colossal amount of grief uh, given physical form on paper that was gathered from around the country and around the world uh, and arrived on their doorstep um, and some of it including 10 and $20 bills uh, sent I think as some sort of gesture of hope that uh, something positive could uh, harness the grief that everyone was feeling and make um, social change happen so that LGBTQ people would be safer as a result so that other families wouldn't suffer a similar outcome, uh, which of course, tragically, they continue to do. Um, and so the shepherds were faced with the choice of 
accepting this windfall of of contributions uh, personally and paying bills with it, or trying to respond to the gesture of faith that it was and do something positive, try to contribute to improved social conditions and safety for young people, Um, the young people who are rejected by their families, the young people who are bullied or harmed, the people who harm themselves in in the wake of mistreatment, uh, and the lifelong discrimination that many LGBTQ people were then facing and some still are. Um, And so the obvious opportunity to create a charitable organization to spread that generosity around to positive causes uh, became apparent. And um, so within a few months of Matt's death, the Shepherds created the foundation and began figuring out what the foundation could do that would be unique. Um, And and really at the core of it, and and still at the core of it, is people using their voices as individuals and, and collectively to demand a better outcome for people in our community and all people who are different from perceived social norms, be that religiously or economically, racially, ethnically, uh, by disability, by gender or gender identity, um, the way people who are different from society's perceived norms uh, get treated uh, is more alike than different. Um, And so that's the work that they embarked upon and uh, almost 19 years later that the foundation continues to do. That's that's excellent, and I can't imagine the amount of emotions and what was happening at that time. So I, I see them as extremely courageous, Jason, for taking it on. Uh, I want to ask you a question about the different presidential administrations. So by the timeline you just gave me, their foundation would have existed under Presidents Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now Trump. So their their foundation is now spanned across four presidencies. Do I have the timeline correct? You do, yes. So there are obviously differences in each administration and which political party is in the office. Um, Does the foundation or do you personally have any thoughts on what might be happening in current political climate as far as how this impacts people under the LGBTQ umbrella or other uh, disparaged minority groups in America? Do you have any thoughts on what might be happening right now? Absolutely. Um, we are uh, we're a nonpartisan uh, charitable organization. We don't endorse candidates. We don't organize voters. Uh, we talk to people about the issues that underlie equal treatment in our society, and we trust that they'll make sensible decisions uh, to elect people who will improve and, and further promote equality rather than undermine it. Um, we're living in a time now, and I uh, I think there are a variety of reasons for it. Uh, when our social discourse has gotten much coarser, uh, we have um, an, a, a, an astounding, uh, eye-opening increase in the number of hate crimes being reported on a daily basis in this country, everything from petty vandalism uh, or property destruction uh, up to and including homicide uh, and mass homicide. And... Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that this started to become noticeable, uh, particularly amongst Muslim and other South Asian minority populations in this country, uh, around the middle of 2015, when electoral rhetoric was really reaching a, a hot point um, of uh, nativist sentiment, uh, a, a resurgence of 
what I think we should just label white supremacy and cult- Christian cultural supremacy. And um, along with that, uh, homophobia and uh, straight up uh, racism and, and bigotry against mm-hmm. people from other countries or of different colored skin. And um, I, we saw the 2015 hate crime statistics the FBI released in uh, uh, late November of last year. There was a, a two-thirds increase in the number of hate crimes reported against uh, Muslim and other South Asian minority populations. Uh, attacks against LGBTQ people were up by double digits. Uh, same for uh, Hispanic people um, and um, uh, the most uh, murders of uh, transgender individuals in this country uh, were recorded in that year and unofficial statistics from 2016 are even bigger. So there's an, there's an unquestionable trend uh, toward people um, expressing their disapproval of those who are different from them uh, through destructive, violent, or otherwise criminal means. Um, and, you know, there's one candidate uh, over the last two years who has fanned those flames and made a winning political strategy yeah. out of doing so, and I think it would be irresponsible for all of us, be we nonprofit advocates or ordinary folk, um, to ignore that or pretend that that's normal. It's not normal. It's contrary to all the positive social trends that have occurred over the last 20 years under both parties' administrations, and uh, we have an obligation to call it out, uh, to shine a light on it, and to provide uh, judicial and social accountability uh, for people who indulge in that kind of hatred. Absolutely, and um, I just want to highlight two LGBTQ-related news stories from this week. One that's just been reported this morning by Gay Star News. Listen to this. They're reporting that 13 shots were fired at an LGBTQ equality center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from a passing truck on Monday. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but there are bullet holes discovered in the center. So 13 bullets were fired at an LGBTQ center in Tulsa, and also um, we have the tremendous issue of LGBTQ uh, youth suicides. You know, there was a 14-year-old Scottish gay teen found dead this week. So um, I want to ask you about that work. Does the Matthew Shepard Foundation work with at-risk LGBT youth? Like, what, what's your demographic? Who, what type of folks do you work with in the foundation? Sure. So first of all, about the center in Tulsa, uh, this fits uh, very cleanly into a pattern of um, bias-motivated violence against facilities that serve diverse communities. There have been uh, well over 100 bomb threats or death threats issued against um, uh, Jewish community centers or their personnel in this country in the last few months. Uh, they're not isolated incidents. They indicate they're indicative of, a, of an organized or conspiratorial uh, effort to uh, terrorize uh, the Jewish faith uh, and all who support diversity. Uh, and so the attack on the center in Tulsa uh, is straight out of that playbook and more violent than most attacks uh, against uh, other facilities in recent weeks. Furthermore, uh, just so this hits home, um, I was in Tulsa on Saturday and Sunday of this past weekend uh, for their annual Red Ribbon Gala to support HIV and AIDS um, prevention and treatment uh, in what is really one of America's most underrated, uh, most remarkable 
small cities. Uh, Tulsa has a vibrant culture of diversity and um, as one of the, on a per capita basis, probably the best LGBT center in the country. Uh, and I've, I've been there before. I've, I watched that video. I've stood at the reception desk that that video is shot from. Uh, so that was very personally disturbing, especially since it came like 26 hours after the Tulsa community raised $850,000 for HIV work. Um, yeah. So that kind of shows the puzzle of the time we live in. Like Our causes have gained more currency and more public support than they ever dreamt of having 30, 35 years ago at the height of the epidemic. But at the same time, people feel empowered to tool around town with high-powered weaponry, um, taking shots at uh, facilities that serve our community, and thank God no one was working late, um, or we'd be talking about a much more serious outcome. Um, so putting that all into perspective, uh, our demographic is pretty much everybody who's at risk of being harmed for ideological, racial, or religiously prejudicial reasons. Um, that said, we have always had a keen interest in especially addressing the problems faced by LGBTQ youth and, and their families. Um, we're seeing uh, young people demonized for wanting to go to the bathroom. Uh, we're seeing um, um, an, uh, an upswing in bullying incidents in schools, not just against uh, queer kids, but against uh, kids who are Mexican-American or Muslim or in any other way uh, defy some kind of uh, social norm uh, in the minds of, of people who are, who are bigots. Um, we know that LGBTQ kids are at greater risk of running away from home. Uh, they're at greater risk of homelessness. They're at greater risk of being sent to, to conversion therapy. Uh, some of these camps are uh, essentially religiously sanctioned torture. Uh, and they are at greater risk of bullying uh, in their schools and outside of them and online uh, because bullying is a 24-hour-a-day opportunity now and not just something that happens at the lunch hour. And right. uh, most chillingly, they're uh, at an elevated risk of hurting themselves, cutting, uh, substance abuse, um, suicide attempts and suicides uh, are claiming the lives of uh, of LGBTQ kids uh, every day. And um, as a society, we're stuck at, at the starting gate somehow trying to figure out how to address this um, and debating it. And maybe in the election next year, we'll elect people who care more about this issue. But these kids are going to get one childhood, and they're having it today. They're having it right now. There's not time for us to wait for the next election to hash out whether we're going to help them. We're either going to help them or we're, we're going to write them off. And it matters that we do it now um, because every tomorrow that rolls around, we have a couple fewer of those kids with us. And um, I just can't stridently enough urge people to stop in their tracks and think about the, the devastation being suffered by kids today over ideologies that a bunch of adults are tossing around as if it's a game. It's not a game, and we each individually, as members of our communities, have a responsibility to sound the alarm about it and, and get involved. And 
So a, a big, big part of our work, especially Judy Shepherd's travels around the country speaking to people, is to get them out of their silent complacency and get them involved, get them running for school board, get them campaigning for candidates for the legislature, get them writing letters to the editor, get them raising money for these causes, get them taking in kids whose parents reject them. Um, yesterday would not be soon enough to get this work underway.